Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features our comments about what's going on in the world and a conversation with a senior who has found a way to bring new energy and meaning into their life. So grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about questionable medical procedures. We commiserate with a guy who lost his autographs of the Bidens. We introduce a new challenge we call, I Saw It on the Boob Tube. We celebrate a gal who rediscovered jumping rope in her mature years. And we reveal surefire ways to avoid airline carry-on fees. You're welcome. The Old Dog's conversation is with Barbara Tobin, a lady who discovered world travel early and never stopped. Stay with us. Paul? Yo. What happened to your face? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask. Uh, Uh, I visited a dermatologist, which I do on a regular basis, you know, to check for melanoma. Well, out of the blue, he says, you know, I could clean up a lot of those spots on your face. Uh, Next thing I know, he's going zip, zip, zip with a little gun to freeze spots. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So now I look like I got in a nice pick fight. <laughs> you know, what can I tell you? But it does raise a question. I don't know. Do do we senior citizens look like an easy bill to physicians? Oh, you know, I could clean that up. Our yeah. last words you should probably worry about. Yeah, especially when they're referring to like your kidney or something. <laughs> well, I haven't had that experience. Oh, listen. I, I frequently hear, hey, have you had your shots? <laughs> well, w- what shots? Well, you know, you distemper, you know, this and, and they ramble off a whole bunch of stuff. And I said, yeah. I, well, yeah. I don't know. I don't think I've ever had a distemper shot. Well, uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and what about what about those lab tests? Yeah, we're gonna have to take some blood. They say, "Well, how much?" Oh, I'll tell you when. how much you got. <laughs> yeah, really. So they end up with three or four vials of uh, blood, and then they get back this report that you don't you don't understand. But um, you have something you didn't know you had, and you're going to need treatment for it and expensive medication. Well, even if you don't need treatment, they get you with the lab fees, right? Well, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I got insurance for that. No, oh, really? You you don't yeah. have any copays? Oh man. Well, in any case, I think that you're right. That doctors are looking for things to charge you for, and unfortunately, they're finding them. And the older we get, the more they're finding. Right? That's Until true. what? What happens then? What's the end point? Well, you know what the end point is, Jim. I don't want to hear it. You have to go there. (laughs) This item appeared in the Washington Post. Carl Anthony has spent three decades collecting the signatures of presidents and first ladies on an engraved card. Well, he had just gotten the signatures of the Bidens, and over lunch he took a picture of the collection. He thought he had put the card safely back in a manila envelope, but when he returned to his hotel, the card was missing. Oh, He's tried to be philosophical about it, but hey, to him it was a priceless treasure. Well, I imagine to him it was a priceless treasure. Yeah. Uh, Of course, that makes me wonder, Jim, have you ever lost a priceless treasure? Oh, yeah. Come on. It's every kid's nightmare. I lost my Mickey Mantle baseball card. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. I had Mickey Mantle. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, in my case, I I had a pretty big comic collection. Mm-hmm. And have you seen the prices that comics are getting these days? <laughs> Not I mean, that I would pay for the, it. Nope. Yeah, I this know. This is from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Now, the only down part about it is that they were probably in tatters by the end of my reading right, them. Right. So uh, I'm not sure how much they would be worth, but it still was my priceless treasure. Certainly. This is the first installment of I Saw It on the Boob Tube. In this segment, we give clues to a more or lesser known TV show from the 50s and 60s. And yes, it's another trivia game with no prizes. If you got a problem with that, start your own podcast. The TV show we are featuring in this episode is named after an address in Los Angeles. That's the location for a detective agency. It was the first of four detective shows from Warner Brothers Studios that followed a similar formula, except the location changed for each show. The stars of the show were Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., Roger Smith, and a newcomer named Edward Burns, who played a character called Gerald Lloyd Cookson III, Kooky for short. Name the show and the novelty song that was based on a character from the show, and you will win our awe at your misspent youth. We'll be back later with the answers. In case you missed it, the Southwest is experiencing a record heat wave. Oh, I haven't missed it. So the Washington Post shared this advice. Your thermostat is not like a water faucet. In other words, turning your thermostat down to 60 degrees may not produce any more cooling than if set to 70 degrees. And continuously running your air conditioning runs up your electrical bill and shortens the life of your air conditioning. Their advice is to find a setting between 71 and 77 degrees that feels comfortable and resist the temptation to turn the thermostat down. In fact, if you could be comfortable at a degree or two warmer than normal, you can save a bunch of money on your electric bill. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, Paul, I've, uh, I don't get it anywhere near down to 77. I think. Well, what we, do you set it at? You know, we call it cool when it's set to 78. You say, oh, man, that's good. Are gonna, you kidding? I am not man, kidding. Man, I'd you. be wearing my jockey shorts at 78. <laughs> no. We keep ours at 74, but you know what? I've been contemplating maybe turning it up a degree to 75 oh. to see. See if I am miserable. Bold, bold. I, I, Obviously, I'm more sensitive than you are. Yeah, you certainly are. I, when I call you names, you really get offended. <laughs> well, it all started at a Memorial Day cookout in 2016. Pamela Robinson loved jumping double dutch as a child, but she rarely indulged as an adult until that Memorial Day cookout at a neighbor's house in a Chicago suburb. She'd been going through some personal challenges, and the joy she found from jumping rope that day gave her an idea. She was going to form a group of older women to recapture the fun of playing outside and jumping rope. She called the group the 40-plus Double Dutch Club. The initial five members have grown to 10,000 active members, ranging in age from 40 to over 80. The members are divided into more than 100 chapters who agree to meet at least once a week to play. Members are encouraged to try games outside of Double Dutch, including hopscotch and hula hoops. <laughs> they even have a national play date once a year in July. This year, over 600 members attended the event in Chicago. 
However, this is for women only. No men or children are allowed. The only thing that bothers me, Jim, is this is for women only. What about men like you and me that would like to play? I got a name for it. Yeah. We could call it Depends on Men. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> That's the group. It'll be strictly over 70. Yeah. And we get together once a week just to play. Play what? You got an idea for what kind of games we could play? Um. Well, how about... Uh Slow pitch dodgeball. Oh, okay. Or low impact walking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Slow motion hide and seek. Well, it's a, it's a work in progress, hey? Yeah. Here are the answers for I Saw It on the Boob Tube. The show was 77 Sunset Strip, which ran from 1958 to 1964. And the novelty song was Kooky, Kooky, Lend Me Your Comb, because the character Gerald Lloyd Cookson was forever combing his hair. I knew that, Jim. Baby, you're the ginchiest. All the airlines seem to find ways to increase their revenue, whether it's charging for an aisle seat or paying large for snack food. Now, one of the biggest add-ons is baggage fees that are charged each way on a round trip. Well, a columnist with the Washington Post figured out a way to beat luggage fees. She overdressed all her outfits. She got on the plane wearing four tops, two pairs of pants, and two pairs of socks and sneakers. It wasn't clear how she wore two pairs of shoes, but she's a journalist. She wouldn't lie, would she? She also calculated the largest carry-on she could carry on and stuffed it with laptop, toiletries, and more clothing. Layered clothing may not be for everyone, but airline cabins usually are freezing anyway. Yeah, I don't know. Can you imagine wearing more than one shirt, even? I think I would look even chubbier than I <laughs> yeah, am. Yeah, that's my problem, too. Well, what but, else? you know, I have, I have no objection to trying to beat the airlines. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I got an idea. At mm-hmm. our age, we can always pre-board, right? Mm. So you look around and find somebody who's in the last boarding group, and you tell them, hey, for 20 bucks, you can escort me on the plane. Mm. Love it. Mm. You got any more? Uh, if I were traveling with somebody else, I could see if I could stuff them into the overhead. Oh, yeah, they would love that. How does that save you money? I don't oh, know. Here's, here's, <laughs> here's the last one I'm going to offer, and I think this one is great. Board with like about six or seven sandwiches mm-hmm. and then sell them to the highest bidder on the plane. <laughs> you know, their snack food is what, 20 bucks a pop? Yeah, really. Hey, yeah, you know, you could clear maybe a good 20 or 30 bucks that way. Barbara Tobin worked in USAID-funded international public health projects for over 20 years with a focus on strengthening health systems. She has worked in or visited over 50 countries, including long-term field experience in Kenya, consulting assignments in Africa and Asia, and senior management responsibilities at the U.S. headquarters of both Management Sciences for Health, MSH, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Ms. Tobin lived in Kathmandu for four years. She was twice on assignment in Nepal and has also lived and worked long-term in Kenya, India, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Barbara, because of our relationship in the Peace Corps many years ago, I'd like to start there by asking you 
that that fundamental change that must have occurred when you spent those two years in the Peace Corps that led you on this incredible path uh, of uh, service and discovery. One of the earlier starting points was that I was an exchange student in high school and spent the summer in Turkey. I think that really opened my eyes to the rest of the world. It was a language you know, that was different. Food was different, culture, religion, everything was different. I stayed with a very loving family uh, and discovered that the world is a really interesting place. I think one of the important things about my Peace Corps experience was learning self-reliance. Paul, we lived in a, a little thatched hut on a teeny tiny island. Um, a ship came once every four to six weeks on no particular schedule. Um, there was no electricity, there was no nothing. Basically, we were living on a, this gorgeous, very remote island. And it meant if you needed something, you had to figure out how to do it. So if we wanted eggs, we started to raise chickens. And I had already known how to sew. Um, and so I got a hand crank sewing machine. So you're, you're guiding it, you know, you're cranking it and guiding. And so if you want clothes, I made clothes. I had learned how to cook uh, over a one burner kerosene stove and we made a, an oven out of a, a metal biscuit tin. So you, you put that on top of the one burner stove. And actually that was my best cooking. I made homemade bread every week and cinnamon rolls and you know, souffles and pies and all this. Um, because if you wanted it, you had to figure it out. And Bob, my then husband, um, learned how to spearfish, and he would go out at night and catch us fish. So it was, it was totally self-reliance, and being with with lovely people who wanted us there and appreciated that we were teaching English to the kids. So it was a great starting point for what turned out to be kind of a lifelong passion of living overseas and working. So you had continued that passion. Was that right away? Uh, that you uh, decided to embark on another similar adventure? Um, well, I moved from one island to another. That is, from my atoll in the Marshalls to Manhattan. <laughs> Very primitive, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a shock. So that was a switch from self-reliance to self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I worked for a couple of years just doing not much of anything. In particular, I wasn't career-focused at all then. Um, but that was the late 60s, early 70s, where backpacking in Europe was the thing to do. So I got a backpack and went off to Europe for a year because a round-trip ticket was $200. I spent three months in Spain traveling with, with somebody I had met, and I spoke pretty good Spanish from, from school. Um, then I went to... This was no particular plan. I went to, to Israel and worked on a kibbutz for four months. Well, interesting time in Israel. It was 1973. The war had just ended. So I was there four months, and then I went to Greece and wound up in Crete, um, living on a beach and getting the world's most perfect town. <laughs> and kind of at that point, I decided maybe I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and how to connect my obvious love of being overseas with doing something productive. And that's when I went to graduate school 
uh, in international development. Uh, and it was a program really designed for returned Peace Corps volunteers who wanted to be able to continue doing service overseas, but with a more professional standing and as paid professionals, not as volunteers. Uh, and that program was part of the time on campus. And then we went off and did internships. So I lived in Malaysia and the Philippines for about a year and a half. At that point, it looks like you focused on matters of uh, health and well-being, uh, that you administered programs that were focused on uh, issues of health in these ver various countries that you participated in. It was a combination of health with management, with really an emphasis on the management part, because in so many countries, well, and even here, um, people know their technical expertise, but they also need to know how to manage programs, institutions, um, you know, health facilities, and that's not something that's taught very often. So I, it was that combination because I had the management background and, and was able to apply it in health situations. And, and that really became a theme for, for you know, the remainder of my career. Mm -hmm. uh, then once you got your degree, you moved to Washington and met somebody at an event for your graduate school. There was this guy there um, who started talking about you know, kind of life plans, and he was in USAID. Um, and we hit it off really well, and we wound up getting married. <laughs> he was actually assigned to go to Bangladesh. So this is like 1970. Fine. And I said, I don't have any interest in Bangladesh whatsoever. I'll drive you to the airport and I'll write you aerograms, but thanks, but no thanks. Um, and <laughs> so he went into his office one day and he had this real dilemma. You know, there's this woman he wants to marry, but she doesn't want to go to Bangladesh. He's supposed to go to Bangladesh. And he's telling all his friends this. And they said, you're assigned to go there. You know, who does she think she is? Yeah, pitcher. And then he went in and talked to his boss and kind of told him the same story. And his boss said, I'm sure not quite like this, but where would she like to go? <laughs> and he said, well, Nepal, that would work. And he said, well, then go find yourself a job in Nepal. Wow. And that's what, that's what he did. So uh, how many countries have you visited? Oh, I should have brought my map. Um, <laughs> I think you had mentioned that? something between 50 yeah, and 55. 55 and yeah. 50. And it's wow. a com combination of countries that I worked in mm -hmm. and countries that I went to visit just, you know, as a tourist. You were involved with teaching English as a second language for a while. You're still doing that? I'm tutoring. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually did that in Peace Corps. Uh, we, I don't know, Jim, what did you guys do? You weren't doing that, were you? Yes, we started off doing the same thing in the district center. Yeah, so it, it started there when I lived in Nepal. I was teaching English to Sherpa guides who needed it for their work to be able to, to deal with the tourists. Um, and... Just recently, I have begun tutoring here. I, a couple of years ago, I, I was tutoring 
people in basic literacy. So these are Americans who just can't read, of which there are many more than I ever imagined. Um, and now I, because I really believe if you're living in this country, you ought to speak English. And I decided, okay, if that's what I really believe, I ought to do something about it instead of just spouting off about it. Mm -hmm. So I started to learn. You say that you are retired now, Barbara, but uh, we caught you in between uh, wherever you've been for the last few months, and you're ready to go to Mongolia. So what's that all about? I thought you said you were retired. <laughs> now what? Well, I mean, retired means I'm not working. and I'm not doing consultancies. But last winter, I had the chance to go on a trip with the Overseas Adventure Travel Group to uh, Morocco. So I was there for two weeks, um, and it was wonderful. And I came back, and somebody said, so, what's next? And I said, I don't know. I've kind of been everywhere that I want to go. I know, maybe Mongolia. <laughs> and that day, they emailed me the information about, yes, an OAT trip to Mongolia. And I thought, what the hell? So that's, <laughs> that's kind of been my attitude. You know, if, if an opportunity comes along, you know, for traveling someplace, why not take it? So, Barbara, what uh, yeah. what fills your life these days with energy and interest? And, and along those lines, what do you recommend for other people in our age range? Um, that's a really good question because I think, for me, certainly COVID really stopped me in my tracks. I mean, a number of things happened in a row. Um, I retired, Steve died, and COVID hit, all in short order. So kind of what would have been the structure of my retired life changed dramatically and irrevocably. Um, so now I am, I'm redefining that. And so getting back into travel is an obvious one. Um, I love the tutoring because it's, it's, it's useful and it's fun, which is a great combination. I'm also part of Sages and Seekers. Have you guys heard of that? No, tell us about it. It's a it's a program that links up older people with high school students. So it's based in high schools, um, and it's for intergenerational communications is the fancy word for it. Um, so we go in and we are paired up one on one with a high school student, usually either a sophomore or a senior. And we go in once a week and we just have the chance to talk. And the idea is for them to learn about older folks and overcome maybe their stereotypes. <laughs> so it's like eight or nine weeks. And at the end, they have to write an essay about us. And it's, a, it's wonderful, fun. You discover things about each other. They learn things. Uh, we learn things. And I've been doing this now for a number of years. And it's... It's great fun. You know, Barbara, we haven't mentioned your children. What are they up to? Daughter is a college librarian here in Boston, um, and she does a lot of teaching. She's not stamping out books at the desk. Um, Zach is a wilderness firefighter. Um, he lives out west. He lives in Idaho um, for the past eight years, I guess. He's been what's called a smoke jumper. Never heard of those? Yep. Oh, yeah. A very dangerous job. Yeah. So, yeah, he would yeah, jump out of airplanes to go fight fires. Um, 
everybody would think I should sit here really worried about him. And my response has always been, what good would that do? Hmm. You know, I can't do anything about it. And what, he's supposed to go tell his boss he can't jump today because he talked to his mother last night and she's worried about him? I mean, (laughs) just doesn't work. So I just trusted that the Forest Service really believed in safety first, and they absolutely did. All of these wonderful things that you've done and everything that you've seen, uh, is there anything that you regret you wish you hadn't done? I am thrilled to say nothing comes to mind. I think what I would say generically is don't be afraid to try. You know, you got to get out there. You've got to be willing to get into the world or whatever because that's how you discover things and learn and grow. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.